0: Welcome to Part 3 of our series on George Washington. This article is also from the February 2000 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry and is titled George Washington, Spy Master Extraordinaire by S. Eugene Potit, 32nd degree. Washington was a master of intelligence, counterintelligence, and military deception. Even though much is known and has been written about George Washington, the commander of the victorious Continental Army that secured our independence, our first president, and a great mason. There is much more to Washington's legacy. We have a clue about another lesser-known side of Washington from Major George Beckwith, the head of British intelligence operations in the colonies at the end of the Revolutionary War. Upon his return to England, along with the defeated British army, Beckwith was quoted by the London newspapers as saying, Washington did not really outfight the British, he simply outspied us. Beckwith had just paid the greatest compliment that one spymaster can make to another. Washington had learned a hard lesson when he was a 21-year-old adjutant under British General Braddock during the French and Indian War. Braddock's forces were ambushed by the French and Indians and virtually annihilated. Washington escaped after his horse was shot out from under him and Braddock was mortally wounded, as so were 615 of his officers and 914 soldiers. The French simply had an effective intelligence network and were aware of Braddock's every move well in advance. Washington never would forget this bitter lesson and never again be so surprised. Today, many scholars attribute Washington's resounding victory in the Revolution as much to his skills as a spy master as to his military leadership. At the beginning of the war, Washington knew he needed eyes and ears inside the British-occupied cities to spy out the secret plans of the British— and one of his first orders of business was to create the secret intelligence service. His initial hasty attempts to place a spy inside New York would end in the death of his first spy, Nathan Hale, whom the British captured and left dangling from the gallows in his stockings for three days as a reminder and deterrent to other potential spies. The British, nonetheless, begrudgingly acknowledged Hale's now famous last words, "'I regret that I have but one life to give for my country.'" Washington would eventually succeed in establishing extremely effective spy networks inside New York. These kept him well informed in advance of the British military tactics, strategies, and plans. Washington established independent spy networks, each without knowledge of the other, a key commandment in the practice of the intelligence trade. His spies committed their identities to memory, using code numbers instead of names, passing encrypted messages, using invisible ink, all the while running the risk of capture and the gallows. Major Benjamin Talmadge, a classics scholar from Yale and a classmate of Nathan Hale, headed Washington's Culper spy ring. Washington was referred to only as code 711. New York became 727. Long Island was 728. Talmadge would use the pseudonym John Bolton as well as the code number 721. The ring succeeded in preventing the British from interdicting the arrival and safe landing of the French fleet with its seasick and vulnerable cargo of soldiers intent on helping the colonists. One of the Culper Ring's most surprising and successful agents was known as Agent 355. Her true identity has remained a secret to this day. She is credited with having helped uncover Benedict Arnold's treachery in surrendering West Point and aiding in the capture of Major John Andre, the head of British intelligence in New York. Washington offered the British to trade Andre for the return of Arnold, but without success so he reluctantly ordered Andre hanged, as had been Nathan Hale. The British would soon capture Agent 355 as the spy who must have compromised Andre. She was imprisoned on board a ship where she would die from abuse, illness, and neglect. The Mulligan spy ring included Hercules Mulligan, the Irish haberdasher to the British officer corps in New York, Mulligan's brother, Hugh, who ran a bank frequented by the British, and Haim Solomon, a Polish Jew who spoke several languages, including German. He became a translator for the British in passing orders to their Hessian troops. Thus, he was Washington's fox in the British henhouse. Solomon, too zealous as a saboteur in the cause of freedom, would finally be caught, escape, and become better known historically as a financial supporter of the revolution. The true story of Washington's victory at Trenton against the Hessian mercenaries was another inside intelligence operation. Washington had a spy inside Trenton, John Honeyman, working undercover as a merchant, selling beef to the Hessians. Honeyman provided Washington all the details about fortifications, weapons, stores, and the critical timing necessary for the swift victory, all without losing a man. The Trenton victory would be the morale booster that reignited the colonial's sagging trust in Washington's ability to engage successfully the superior, better equipped, and trained British Army. During the dark days at Valley Forge, the British planned a surprise attack to wipe out the old fox, Washington, once and for all, and to bring the rebellion to a swift end. Washington was extremely vulnerable at this time, and his bedraggled troops could easily have been defeated, except for his spy network inside the British-occupied Philadelphia. Lydia Darrow, another of Washington's spies, eavesdropped on the British strategy session planning the attack, learning all the details, She then drove her wagon hard to warn Washington, claiming to be going to buy flour at Frankfurt's Mill. Along their supposedly secret march to Valley Forge, the British troops were ambushed, sniped at, and harassed by George Washington's troops. General Harris would later report that Washington did not seem a bit surprised at the attack. As the war neared its conclusion, Washington's intelligence services were functioning like a well-oiled machine. His codebreakers were intercepting and decoding the British fleet's codes. This permitted the French fleet to control the Chesapeake Bay and successfully keep British reinforcements from reaching General Cornwallis at Yorktown. Washington used his intelligence information effectively to know when conditions were favorable to stand and fight, and it was more prudent to avoid a battle. He was and remains our nation's past master of intelligence, counterintelligence, and military deception. His words written for his spies in 1777 are still valid and required reading in the CIA. The necessity of procuring good intelligence is apparent and need not be further urged. All that remains for me to add is that you keep the whole matter as secret as possible, for upon secrecy, success depends in most enterprises of the kind, and for want of it, they are generally defeated, however well planned and promising a favorable issue. The following article is from the January 2000 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, USA. George Washington's Legacy to the 21st Century by Robert L. Goldsmith, 33rd Degree. Now, more than ever, America needs men like George Washington. Let us for a few minutes reflect on George Washington, the man and Mason who gave so much for his country. Without his leadership, it is doubtful our nation would be as it is today. Few men have been as revered as George Washington has. Witness the Washington Monument and the George Washington Masonic National Memorial. Also, Mount Vernon, his birthplace, is a national park, and his likeness is on our $1 bills. What other man has been memorialized to this extent? Many believe he was the greatest American who ever lived. This is the man we call the father of our country. Let us also reflect on some of the events in the life of this great man whose place in history is so unique and important. The Order of the Purple Heart for Military Merit, an American honor commonly called the Purple Heart, is the oldest military decoration in the world in present use, and it was established by order of General George Washington from his headquarters in Newburgh, New York, August 27, 1782, during the Revolutionary War. The papers of General Washington quoted in part note, The general ever desirous to cherish a virtuous ambition in his soldiers, as well as to foster and encourage every species of military merit, directs that whenever any singularly meritorious action is performed, the author of it shall be permitted to wear on his facings over the left breast the figure of a heart in purple cloth or silk, edged with narrow lace or binding. Surviving records show the honor was granted to only three men during the Revolution, all of them non-commissioned officers appropriately a bust of washington forms the center of the purple heart and washington's coat of arms is on the decorations top on february 22nd 1732 267 years ago george washington entered this world and on december 14th 1799 68 years later he entered the grand lodge above he was born into a virginia planters family where he learned morals manners and the body of knowledge requisite for an 18th century virginia gentleman George was only a boy when his father died, but he grew up fast. When he was 14, against the wishes of his mother, he wanted to go to sea, but he soon found work and remained with his family. In his early years, he pursued two intertwined interests, military arts and western expansion. At the age of 16, he helped survey Shenandoah lands. Washington never attended college, but he was one of the most prolific readers and accomplished writers of all American presidents. He had excellent handwriting, and as a boy he practiced copying the rules of civility and decent behavior in company and conversation. The rules, which numbered 110, were his model for good behavior and manners when he was growing up. Commissioned a lieutenant colonel in 1754, he fought the first skirmishes of what later became the French and Indian Wars. The next year, as an aide to General Edward Braddock, he escaped injury although four bullets ripped his coat and two horses were shot from under him. From 1759 to the outbreak of the American Revolution, Washington managed his lands around Mount Vernon and served in Virginia's House of Burgesses. Married to a widow, Martha Dandridge Custis, he devoted himself to a busy and happy life. But like his fellow planters, Washington felt himself exploited by British merchants and hampered by British regulations. As the quarrel with the mother country grew acute, he moderately but firmly voiced his resistance to the restrictions." When the Second Continental Congress assembled in Philadelphia in May 1775, Washington, a Virginia delegate, was elected Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. In July 1775, at Cambridge, Massachusetts, he took command of the poorly trained Continental troops and embarked upon a war that was to last six grueling years. Finally, in 1781, with the aid of French allies, he forced the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown, Virginia. Though Washington longed to retire to his beloved Mount Vernon, he soon realized that the nation, under the Articles of Confederation, was not functioning. So he became a prime mover in the steps leading to the Constitutional Convention at Philadelphia in 1787, when the new Constitution was ratified. The Electoral College unanimously elected Washington as president in 1789, His presidency lasted for eight years, but his longed-for retirement at Mount Vernon lasted less than three years before he died in 1799. Washington's life was the best example of unselfish leadership our nation has ever known. All of his qualities were founded on the basis of a pure morality. By his example, he taught us that men of integrity and sound moral principles make the best leaders of armies. In Washington's famous farewell address on his retirement from public life, He emphasized that the responsibility for America's destiny rests upon its citizens. He urged Americans to forge a nation of high principles and to cultivate peace and harmony with all. With the firmness of his convictions, Washington served both the Creator and his fellow men. During the darkest days of the Revolution and the cruel winter at Valley Forge, it was Washington who stood firm in the face of adversity and knelt for prayer in the snow to reaffirm his faith in God and seek divine assistance in the justice of his cause. As Washington's hope was in God, so must we, too, place our hope in the Creator. Washington carried in his heart the ideals of liberty, justice, and freedom. As Freemasons, we must likewise carry forward those same ideals. Now more than ever, America needs men like George Washington, men with patriotism, honesty, courage, and most of all, character. Much more could be said of the legacy of this great man, Mason, and American to the 21st century. However, there can be no greater tribute than the words of Henry Lighthouse Harry Lee. In a resolution presented to the House of Representatives in December 1799 on the death of Washington, a tribute that appropriately has been paid to Washington time and time again over the last 200 years, Lee said, To the memory of the man, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. The following article is from the February 1999 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, USA. George Washington, Some Personal Facts, by James C. Rees, 32nd Degree, Resident Director of George Washington's Mount Vernon Estate. We need the example set by George Washington now more than ever. George Washington's face is remarkably familiar, in part because we see his portrait each time we use a dollar bill, Yet very few Americans possess much knowledge about the man behind the image. During this anniversary year, the bicentennial of Washington's death, it is particularly distressing that Washington is losing his well-deserved place in the schoolroom. His portrait disappeared from most classroom walls decades ago, but now Washington is also becoming less prominent in history textbooks. The fourth-grade textbook I used in the public school system in Richmond, Virginia in 1962 includes almost ten times more coverage of Washington than the history textbook used in the very same school today. Obviously, today's book must cover almost four additional decades of historic events, yet Washington and the other Founding Fathers have clearly been shortchanged. What makes this situation especially disturbing is this simple fact. We need the example set by George Washington now more than ever. People today long for men and women who possess old-fashioned qualities such as honesty, strong morals, good judgment, patriotism, courage, and most of all, character. In 1999, our challenge is not simply to relate the tried and true stories of Washington's leadership in both war and peace. We also need to communicate the true personality and character of this great man so that younger generations will once again be attracted to Washington as a role model in their own lives, So the next time you gather together with family and friends, turn the conversation to George Washington and ask your friends if they are aware of these fascinating aspects of Washington's life. 1. Washington was one of the early America's foremost businessmen. Not only was he successful at harvesting several cash crops, but he also operated a successful gristmill and a distillery that produced more than 11,000 gallons of liquor over a period of a year. He organized a fishing operation that netted some one million shad and herring in a short six-week season. He invested in real estate in a major way, expanding his Mount Vernon estate from 2,000 to 8,000 acres. He purchased more than 60,000 additional acres of land in what would today be seven different states and the District of Columbia. Among his holdings were 2,000 acres near Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, 4,000 acres of the Dismal Swamp, and lots in both the city of Alexandria and the new nation's capital. He also owned more than 33,000 acres in the Ohio Valley, more than 1,000 acres in Maryland, 5,000 acres in Kentucky, and 3,000 acres near the site of present-day Cincinnati. Despite the fact that he was constantly distracted from his own business ventures by the call of his country, Washington was a successful entrepreneur who believed wholeheartedly in investing in the future of America. When he was just 23 years old, Washington was in command of the entire Virginia regiment in the French and Indian War. At the onset of the French and Indian War, Washington joined General Edward Braddock's ill-fated mission to the Monongahela in 1755 as an aide-de-camp. This was by no means a shining moment in Washington's career. Washington warned Braddock that the guerrilla-style tactics used by the enemy would require a different approach to warfare, but Braddock ignored Washington's counsel and his forces were severely defeated the general himself was mortally wounded. When General Braddock fell, the men around him naturally turned to Washington, who organized the retreat and kept the army from disbanding. By the end of the battle, a large percentage of the English soldiers had fallen, and Washington himself had four bullet holes in his coat and was on his third horse. Yet the young Virginian was an unquestionable hero even in defeat. He was almost immediately appointed a colonel and given complete command of the Virginia Regiment. Washington was just 23 years old and off to an auspicious start in his military career. 3. Washington never went to college, but he was one of the most well-read and accomplished writers of all American presidents. Washington's father died when he was 11 years old. As the oldest son of a second wife, Washington discovered there was little money or time for him to attend a university. Instead, he became a surveyor at age 16 to help support his family. Still, Washington was a voracious reader, and he eventually assembled a personal library of some 900 books of all descriptions. He was also a prolific writer. At the age of 14, he copied down 110 rules of civility. Five decades later, he was still writing lengthy letters to governors, congressional leaders, and influential friends in support of our new government. Scholars at the University of Virginia are currently assembling the papers of George Washington, and before the project is completed, the editors expect to issue about 90 separate volumes. In an age before typewriters and word processors, Washington recognized the power of an old-fashioned quill pen. 4. In all likelihood, Washington could have been America's first king, but he turned down the crown. Scholars seem to agree that the most critical moment of Washington's military career came not during the war itself, but at the close of the Revolutionary War. Many of Washington's officers were furious that they had not been properly paid or appreciated for their efforts in the Revolution, so they started a plan to revolt, this time against Congress. There was talk of placing Washington as king of a new nation, but Washington was not about to become a monarch like the one he had worked so hard to defeat. So he used his powers of persuasion to stop the revolt before it got started. Unlike successful leaders of past revolutions, Washington willfully and unconditionally surrendered his power just when it reached its apex. When many world leaders expected Washington to assume his rightful place as the ruler of a new nation, he laid down his sword and took up his plow. Today, we take our freedom so much for granted and accept democracy as so natural and so right that it is hard to imagine the importance of Washington's voluntary retirement. But in 1783, it was an earth-shattering event. The highly skeptical King George III, perhaps confident that Washington's retirement was some sort of scam, predicted that if the commander-in-chief gives up all his power and returns to his farm, he will be the greatest man in the world. Just a few years later, when Napoleon lay on his deathbed, defeated and forlorn, his last words were, they expected me to be another Washington. It was as if the people of France had asked for the impossible. How could anyone possibly live up to Washington's standards? 5. Washington was one of the wealthiest men in Virginia, but also one of the most frugal. After his father died when he was 11 years old, Washington, his mother, and his siblings had to struggle to make ends meet. At the age of 16, Washington started work as a surveyor to help his mother cover the family expenses. Washington's fortunes changed after he inherited Mount Vernon from his older half-brother and he married the wealthy widow Martha Dandridge Custis. But throughout his life, he remembered the value of a dollar. When he needed a much larger home, he continued to add to the simple frame house instead of tearing down a perfectly good structure and starting from scratch. When the house was expanded, the staircase in the small original house was recycled to serve as the access to the garret. When the Revolutionary War started, he purchased a used traveling trunk, much like you or I would, at a yard sale today, and placed his family brass nameplate directly on top of the last owner's initials. He was always pressing his farm managers and workers to recycle old materials and to use fallen wood from the forest rather than cut down trees. A stickler for detail, Washington once calculated that a bushel of Timothy seeds would include, on average, 13,410,000 kernels. Washington died a wealthy man because he believed in his friend Benjamin Franklin's edict, a penny saved is a penny earned. Number six, Washington owned slaves, but at the end of his life, he was against slavery. Washington became a slave owner at the age of 11, when he inherited about 10 slaves at the death of his father. By the time he died, Washington and his wife owned more than 300. Yet during the course of 50 years, Washington's opinions about the institution of slavery changed dramatically. His travels north taught him that agriculture could be carried out successfully without slave labor, and he witnessed young African Americans fighting fiercely for the colonist cause in the Revolution. Unlike most of the founding fathers who owned slaves, Washington freed his slaves in his last will and testament and set aside funds to help them begin a new life. He wrote on several occasions that he was opposed to slavery, noting that there is not a man living who wishes more than I do to see a plan adopted for the abolition of it. 7. Washington's teeth were not made from wood, but they were definitely false. Lots of people were dentally challenged in the 18th century, and because there were far fewer methods to prevent decay than we have today, few adults possessed a full set of pearly whites. It seems that Washington tried to crack walnuts with his teeth when he was a teenager, and not long after that, they began to loosen and fall out. Washington's dental problems were clearly evident by the time he reached his late 20s, when a fellow soldier noted that Washington's mouth is large and generally firmly closed, but from time to time disclosed some defective teeth. Although Washington followed the advice of contemporary dentists, he used dental powders and a toothbrush remarkably similar to our own, his dental dilemma persisted. In the 1780s, a French dentist tried unsuccessfully to transplant teeth into Washington's mouth, and some evidence exists that several enterprising slaves at Mount Vernon sold their teeth for his experiment. By the time he took the oath of office as president, Washington was in full dentures, which produced a noticeable change in the appearance of his face, as well as somewhat hollow, flat voice. Despite legends to the contrary, Washington's false teeth were not constructed from wood. The teeth were carved from the larger teeth of animals, such as cows, or in some cases, from ivory tusks. They were then attached to a metal frame, fitted with tiny springs. Washington tried several different pairs of dentures, but always complained that they were ill-fitting. 8. Washington was in the midst of many savage battles, but he was never hit by a bullet or touched by a sword. Washington's life was full of near-misses, although he was often in the forefront of chaotic battles where many men fell dead or wounded, Washington was never injured. He also survived bouts of malaria, a severe case of smallpox, typhoid fever, a slight case of tuberculosis, two near-fatal encounters with the flu, and a serious case of pneumonia. An infection in his leg nearly took his life. Fortunately, Washington faced each of these trials with courage and determination. It may simply be luck or coincidence that the father of our country came so close to death both on the battlefield and from illness on so many different occasions. But a better explanation may be inscribed opposite George Washington's portrait on the dollar bill. The words, In God We Trust, were exceedingly meaningful to George Washington. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment.